Hello and welcome to Tomorrow Comes Today, the thought leadership podcast from St. James's Place. Accompanying me today, as ever, is Rob Gardner. Hi, Rob, how are you? Hi, Matt. I'm well, thanks. Great to be here, as always. And look, I can't wait to chat to these brilliant guests with our listeners. I know, right? We've got some incredible conversation to sort of dissect today. We'll start with Azim Azar, technologist, entrepreneur, and author of Exponential, How to Thrive in an Age of Accelerating Technology. Then we've got Carla Starnex, journalist and co-author of a brilliant book called Making Numbers Count. She's written that with Chip Heath, and it really will change the way we think. And finally, social engineer and hacker Jenny Radcliffe. She calls herself the people hacker. Now, Rob, out of that lot, a favourite? Honestly, Matt, it's Sophie's choice. I I can tell you I've read Carla Starr's book, so I do have a bit of a bias there, but I I think it's just unfair to pick her favourite right now. Well, so that you, the listener, can choose your favourite, let's just get on with the business of dissecting, shall we? I spoke to Azim Azar about the release of his book, Exponential, How to Thrive in an Age of Accelerating Technology. And he had some fascinating things to say on the speed with which technology in the world around us is growing and changing. Can we fully come to grips with that growth or are we suffering from information overload? Your latest book, Exponential. I mean, it's, let's, let me give everybody the subtitle, How Accelerating Technology is Leaving Us Behind and What to Do About It. What I took from it is it's about much more than that, isn't it? It's, it's really about how, as humans, how we face the idea that we've always been used to keeping track of things. Now that's not possible. And I suppose the great things you were sort of, you address, I suppose, philosophically, how we cope with that. Yeah. Well, I think the way you've described it is great, actually. I should have consulted you uh, before I put in the uh, the final manuscript. But yeah, I think that's a really good characterization, right? We're used to being able to keep up with things. And for the last 600 years, that has been increasingly less the case. And certainly in the last 10 or 15, it's dramatically not the case. The idea of information overload and, and technology overload, I mean, that's a, that's a very old idea, isn't it? You've got Seneca talking about it, and occasionally in sort of Ecclesiastes in the Bible, they talk about the sort of the multitude of writings. There is something, isn't there, where the world has become addicted to that idea that we make data-informed decisions, but of course, our ability to isolate the data in, from which we may make a decision and our ability to, to work things through and wash up, and that appears to be no longer feasible, doesn't it? There is just so much proliferating all the time. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's about revisiting our assumptions about our relationship with information or media or or the data that comes out of it. You come from a world where being fully informed meant, you know, you read the newspaper in the morning, uh, you read the market research at your desk, and you watch the TV news, and you read a book every two or three weeks, uh, and that meant you're fully informed. You know, when you get to a point where you simply can't consume everything that comes at you, you'll feel underinformed. And and in a way, of course, you weren't fully informed. You were seeing a really tiny snapshot from a very, 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 very particular perspective back then. And the discipline we have to have today around around all of this is the sense that no one's going to be able to eat everything at this all you can eat buffet. I mean, you're just going to have to sort of manage and sort of psychologically cope with a little bit less. And then on the other hand, we have tools that start to help us, right? So particularly around data, you start to have AI tools and or machine learning that can take in so much more data than than humans ever, ever could. And then help us with by just showing us the bits that we we need and we've lived with those systems for many many years 
But there is an uncanniness, isn't there, in the, in the way in which, and you quite rightly bring out the way in which governments, for example, can't quite seem to keep pace with the new realities. I mean, my favourite thing, I think, at the moment is the fact that TV interview technique for politicians still works on the assumption that a thing has happened and they have a considered answer to it, rather than we're living in an age of rolling information and actually politicians now cannot be expected to you know, retreat to checkers for a couple of days, come up with a plan and come back. So they've got to be working on the fly. And of course, we're seeing that not, you know, that convention being hopelessly out of date. The same, I suppose, with policy. I mean, we're all looking at Russia, Ukraine now, but of course, Russia, Ukraine was a blossoming data trail for a very long time that just seemed to be kind of under the radar of people who expected singular events, big things, red letter days and considered policies, I suppose, in a very binary world. Well, I think you're you're really uh, a describing of such an important theme. It's, uh, but I suspect it's as much about unmasking the comfort of ignorance that we had 20 or 30 years ago, because these these things always um, have many, many factors um, and the themes are there and there are pressures that are building in one way or another and outcomes are highly, highly contingent. Uh, one of the things that I was uh, I did in the book was identify themes that had been running for decades. Uh, and so, you know, the, although the book Exponential says we've moved into this exponential age some point between 2013 and 2016, some of the underlying themes, for example, the increasing power of the microprocessor or the declining cost of computing had been running for 60 years. Thing, uh, another theme, which was the relative shift in, um, in bargaining and uh, economic power that went from shareholders and companies away from workers, so so workers lost out, really started in the early 1970s. And they sort of built on these themes because, you know, just as when you watch, uh, I'm not sure how many people do this, but just as you when you watch a, 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 a pot of water boil on the stove, there is a moment where you can see it's boiling because it's bubbling and bubbling and bubbling, but it's still liquid. And then there's a transition point where it becomes like, like steam. And that, I think, is one of the things that we should also be aware of, which is that quite often these themes take a while to play out, but they are highly, highly visible um, in the in those early moments. And I found that academics had started to unpick some of these key points quite early on. And so a lot of the things, for example, that related to, you know, what would happen when we have infinite amounts of media that anyone can produce and how will that change people's relationship to the truth and how will that change create new styles of sort of epistemic thinking. In my canon, Alvin Toffler writes about this in Future Shock. Carl Sagan talks about it, the astronomer in 1986 or 1987. And then there's really sort of serious academic work being done in the early 2000s, even before the arrival of Facebook. And I think one of the lessons for anyone, for you know, a politician or for someone who's investing or someone who's got a little bit of a long-term horizon or a leadership position in their family, frankly, or you know, in their work, is you've got to keep on your toes. It feels like we're at one of those crunch points in history, a sort of a time of change which is not predictable, or at least it's not, it, it wasn't foreseeable before the water started boiling. And that we're looking for, if we look at politics or we look at products or we look at anything, there's a tendency to look for the easy untruth for the answers. Uh, it's really convenient. Uh, and because we have so much momentum in our systems, they can, those untruths can uh, look true for quite quite a long time. Uh, you know, uh, one example of uh, where we have to think about things differently is uh, just the um, assumptions around around companies, right? So when when you and I, you know, graduated university, that 
had we done a management course, we would have been told, well, look, companies get to a certain size because they get organizationally too complex. It then becomes cheaper to contract certain functions out to someone else. Um, and, you know, they face increasing marginal costs for their supply of inputs, right? Whether it's sort of plastics or iron ore or paint. And so they'll be, their products will at some point get to a point where they're, they're no longer profitable. And that creates sort of limits and that allows for more competition. And if anyone gets beyond that, they've behaved badly, right? And that's monopoly. When you actually look at what's happened in the with the advanced exponential age firms, like the sort of Microsofts or, uh, you know, Googles of this world, they're able to grow much, much bigger in, in revenue terms, in, in, in managerial complexity terms. They're much more productive. They make more money per employee than a General Motors ever did. And they don't seem to have the same limits around their inputs, right? Their, their inputs are data, their inputs are other customers, you know, uh, a social media, a social network, bigger, better and stronger, the more people use it because there are more people to connect to. So that's a, that's a reverse of being a car company in the 60s or 70s, where trying to find the hundredth or the thousandth ton of or of, of steel for the car is more expensive than the first time. No, actually, you get these increasing returns to scale. When you think about that, then the way that we think about how competition needs to emerge in a market is really, really different. Do you think, aside from the, the practical idea that people should just take their heads up and look around a little bit more and investigate things and be curious, can you just encapsulate for us uh, a couple of the, I suppose, a couple of your prescriptions for the way forward. Yeah, you know, I, I think that the key challenge that we uh, we've faced is one of of the the accretion of power into you know not just the big five technology firms, but um, into systems that are that are around around them. We're not going to escape recommendation algorithms. We're not going to escape you know ranking systems. We're actually going to need lots and lots of automations in our lives to just make life. You know, a lot, a lot easier. No one wants to run their home network security the way I run my home network security, where I spent three and a half hours on Saturday reconfiguring a firewall. I mean, who, who wants to do that? But the, the thing is that if we're trusting those sorts of capabilities over to someone and they will start to govern, regulate and shape our lives, we need to have some way of checking and balancing that power. And the way that you check and balance that power is quite complex. But some of the recommendations, for example, that I talk about within social networks are increasing obligations as they get larger and larger because they get disproportionately more powerful as they get larger. Um, and those increasing obligations might include disclosing how and why particular decisions get taken. So this is not about them sharing how many content takedowns they did or how many accounts they banned. Well, they're going to have to do that as well, but they're actually going to, they need to as a matter of essentially having a kind of de facto utility-like importance to us. They have to explain why they've chosen a particular policy, who was involved in that cho choosing, so we can understand how that political process, that essentially political process goes on. Azim Ajar there talking about exponential and talking about this new paradigm in a way that we're seeing where things have sped up and we can no longer control it. And I, I want to ask ask you, Rob, I mean, very specifically, as kind of in your, in your professional capacity, not just as the sort of co-host of, of this podcast, 
how do you cope with something like that? I mean, what, how do you take the fact that we have, as he said, you know, anyone can publish information. We're living in a sort of an unlimited soup of data. How do you and how do you help people to plot a course through that? Yeah, I, I think there are a couple of things to unpack in that. And I must admit, I, I've already ordered Azim's book. It, it reminded me of another book called The Singularity Is Now by, by Ray Kurzweil. And he was basically saying in the 20th century, 20 years worth of technological innovation will sort of keep getting shorter and shorter. So we'll then get the same level of progress in 14 years, in seven years, in three and a half years. And the so what of that is in this century, the 21st century, we'll have a thousand times more progress than we saw in the 20th century. So we look back through history and think, wow, you know, 100 years ago, we didn't have aeroplanes. Where are we today? And the point is, is that, that the reason why the book's called The Singularity is all of these exponential technologies sit on top of this. The inflection point for me was kind of when Gary Kasparov lost to Deep Blue. And that wasn't actually a particularly sophisticated computer algorithm. And then t- today we now have AI and machine learning. So what, what do we do? As you say, there is like literally infinite information and it's being produced uh, at an ever-increasing way. And I think we need to recognize that the brain is is finite, right? Where we're going to get to with supercomputers is computers that are 100 million times more powerful than the human brain. So we can't outthink it. This is not about reading more books or reading new, more newspapers. What struck me was, and Azim talked about the trends and themes that we saw 60 years ago, as he said, the doubling of computational power. And I think this is what Ray Kurzweil talks about in The Singularity, is that actually we could already see 10 years ago that drones were going to get cheaper would be able to carry higher and higher payloads. And so 10 years ago, a drone was something really expensive. Today, the kind of drone you can buy for your kids for like 50 quid is better than a drone you could have bought for 500 pounds 10 years ago. And so I think this is where we need to tap into our, our ability to be creative, to think fast, to think slow, and to identify those trends. And I think the point is, is that the the, the the Googles, the Microsofts, the Facebooks saw those trends early and were able to build these, as he says, these exponential organizations that were able to break the limits of growth that experts thought existed around organizations by tapping into this data, by understanding the power of networks and how to harness that. And so in my job, it's impossible to read all the research reports, read the FD cover to cover and everything else, read every tweet, listen to every podcast. And therefore, you do need to sort of stand back and sort of identify what are the big trends, what are the big themes, and then research around that and try and sort of get ahead of those. Because I do think there are breadcrumbs that already exist today that can sort of give us a guide to the future without at the same time trying to predict the future. You know, one of the big changes I've certainly witnessed since the bad old days of, of 2008, 9, 10 and so on is is the de-obfuscation. And this idea, as as you say, you know, that it's no good scientists and climate change uh, experts talking to each other in an academic bubble. They have to be able to come out and holistically de- deal with and get their messages across. Otherwise, they might as well not be doing it at all. And I wonder whether that sort of that new covenant that existed or that, that, that's been forged since, I suppose, 2008 has caused a reset in investment. I mean, how much have you seen that kind of mental reset and that re-engagement of, 
of the public and the idea of reality, I suppose. You're absolutely right. In the global financial crisis, it turned out the people at the top of these organisations didn't really understand some of the financial instruments that that people in these organisations were managing. And of course, you know, like take Jamie Dimon, CEO of JP Morgan. It's an investment bank. Uh, it's a retail bank with Chase. Uh, it's a custodian. These are the people who actually physically own our, our money on our, our behalf. It's an asset manager. It's a wealth manager. The, the organization is fast. The idea that a single person can know everything about all of those divisions that could be standalone companies in, in their own, own right is, is, is of course impossible. I think the flip side is obviously, you know, in, uh, SJP, our day job is to be closer to the client. So there's two ends. There's sort of financial markets at one end of the spectrum. You know what's happening with the base rate in the Bank of England or the Federal Reserve, and what does that mean for financial markets like the S and P 500 or the FTSE 100? What does that mean for individual companies? But that ultimately plays through to people like you and me, uh, all of our listeners who need to just save and invest for the future to make sure they have enough money to last them for the rest of their life uh, and to keep ahead of inflation. And I think there's a bit, again, there's a bit of a signal and noise thing going on here. And I think one of the greatest pieces of value that, 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 that we can do for our client is to get the balance right between when to react and when not to react. So we're recording this on the sort of six-year anniversary of the day after the Brexit vote. And I remember it because it was such a surprise and, and markets panicked and many retail investors sort of panicked and the market did, of course, sell off, but it then recovered very, very quickly. And so that's a, a good example of reacting too quickly. At, at the same time, uh, we, you know, one of the big trends that I like to talk about is how, you know, 120 years ago, the UK was the largest economy in the world. It made up 25% of global market capitalization. The US made up just 15%. By the end of the year 2000, the US was 50% and the UK was 10 to 12%. And then, you know, today, you know, the US is more like 60% and the UK is less than 4%. That's a trend. And therefore, helping our clients have what we call the right strategic asset allocation and getting that right on average over a, so let's say, rolling five-year period is extremely important. Stopping people from either panicking and not investing post-Brexit, post-COVID right now, or panicking and putting their, their, their money out because of their reacting to the short term is, is equally as challenging. So this is sort of this channel of short-term, don't overreact, but long-term trends, make sure that you don't get left behind the trends. And I think that's something that financial advisors, that's one of the most valuable things that they can do for their clients. And this leads us perfectly into our next guest. Making Numbers Count, The Art and Science of Communicating Numbers is a book by Chip Heath, uh, the best-selling author of Switch and Made to Stick and Carla Starr. Now, they're committed to, I suppose, a, a new way of communicating numbers that doesn't feel instantly alienating. And for somebody like me, talking to Carla was a godsend. The way that we use numbers now, I mean, you know, numbers fundamentally are what we call a cognitive tool that allow us to estimate and measure the world with precision. They allow us to, say, measure a piece of wood before we actually put it up and see if it fits on the house, right? We'll just know that beforehand. So it allows us to plan. It allows us also to barter, you know, and trade, um, which is very important for civilization. It allows us to measure 
time, right? So we know, okay, we'll be here at the same amount of time. It allows us to measure distance. So, you know, if we're walking into the woods, we know when exactly are we going to turn. So it does allow us to do all of those things. However, one of the things that I loved in the paper was that it showed, you know, throughout history, because it was one, two, three, many, what cultures have done is they, you know, developed different measurements. So one of my favorites was, I forget which culture it was, but they invented the term called wolf day. So it was the distance that a wolf could walk in one day. So I think the closest we have to that today is light year, right? How far can light travel in one year? And so I understand that that is necessary for people who, you know, study the the universe. Um, However, it's such a large number, we have no actual concept of it. But however, Wolf Day or things like Fathom, right, that was how far across, you know, your arms were. So I think what's happening now is that it is important for, say, people, engineers, people in finance, in their areas, they do need these very precise numbers. However, what they end up doing is those numbers, because People don't think about communicating them to the general public or they just think about maybe communicating them to their peers. And then they think, I'm just going to say this precise thing. If you don't get it, it's your fault, right? You're not educated enough. It feels like we've seen that a lot with things like Silicon Valley, where you'll now have this idea, it's the big data. The big data tells us the algorithm. And there's a a breakdown of trust because all they hear is that the algorithm says do this. Having read your work, it feels like there's a, I don't want to say there's a moment of healing between cultures, but it feels like it's a cry for mutual understanding, at least, and coming together and and, and, and almost stopping that paranoia that's entered the room. Right. So I think um, a few things. I think, you know, um, what you're saying about like trust or, you know, openness. So in social cognition, there's two main ways that we use to to form our impressions of other people. Um, one is warmth, right? So it's, are that person's, you know, benign or are they malevolent? Like, are they good or bad? And the other is competence. And I think that so many professionals, they're just so interested in sort of strutting their competence, sort of like peacock feathers, that they forget about the fact that there is a trade-off, right? So the more convoluted the numbers are, the less transparent it is, and then the less we can actually trust you, like, I mean, how how do we know if your intentions are good or bad if you are just saying like, no, it's all in the spreadsheet. You know, I know what I'm talking about. It's like, well, actually, if you know what you're talking about, why don't you communicate it in a way so that it's transparent and we can all understand and be on the same page? Also, another thing is that people see numbers and they assume 100% objectivity or they use numbers and they want to relay 100% objectivity, right? Oh, no, it's the algorithm. It's not biased. Actually, Numbers are just as biased as the people doing the measuring and the people asking the questions, right? So I know Google, they tried to use an algorithm to sort of outsource their hiring. And what happened? They found out that the algorithm was biased. And that is because they were going off of past decisions. And so, you know, the system is only as good as its inputs. What would be your prescription or your way of trying to reset and trying to get everybody looking much more clearly at the truth of simple numbers and what they can tell us. I honestly, I think part of it is I wish that people would treat others as though they were equally intelligent. However, they just happen to have spent a few decades working in a completely different sector. So they are just as smart as they are, but they just happen to not use numbers the way that they have. Because I think that we are all sort of victims of our own expertise and we don't necessarily think that we have any expertise. Honestly, a lot of it would be about taking away ego and the need to feel smart or sound smart. 
because there is definitely a trade-off between that and clarity or accessibility. So are we siloed too early at school? Honestly, I think just the disciplines being siloed, right? You have a science teacher, right? Now you're going to this world and language is a little bit different. You know, we think of ourselves differently. And I think just that like the way that the subjects are even presented at school, I think that kind of sets us up to have these different frames of mind and these different reference points. We've kind of reduced down our familiarity with these subjects or our introduction to these subjects into much such small worlds. And that I, I really I do wish that teachers or maybe just, you know, curriculum in general would do a better job of sort of, okay, this is what it looks like in the lab, but constantly connecting it to the real world, like constantly bringing it out and unsiloing it and showing just how it connects to all things, you know, so maybe more of like a, a systems mindset and showing like the interconnection of everything would help. Like I'm looking at the big picture and I think absolutely from a very early age, you know, we're taught, okay, now we're going to funnel all of this and just think about this one subject. And really if we could see how all the knowledge is kind of builds on each other, that will go a long way into helping people understand that just being able to communicate and being able to, connect these ideas, that's just a, a skill set or a mindset that I think will help anybody in any industry at any phase of their career or life. Are we looking at, at a time when we could promote the virtue of, I don't know, but I'd love you to tell me about this because frankly, you know, I haven't got a clue. Yes. I have to say, you know, since doing the research and writing, like I absolutely have no shame or I'm not embarrassed at all to ask people to stop Let's explore that and unpack it because I want to very clearly understand it before we move on to the next thing. So, you know, people think like, oh, you must be a numbers whiz by now. I say, actually, I understand the value of not using them that much more. (laughs) I am not ashamed at all. So I just have to say that even to think about it in terms of being a novice, I just think about it in terms of expressing things in a universally accessible, interesting way. So that I don't necessarily see it as, you know, more or better. I just think, how about we translate this idea into a different term so that it's easier for everybody. And I also think that, you know, having written this book and, you know, kind of worked in this, and now I'm starting to do consulting and talk about this, these ideas with people in other industries. um, I also think that it's helpful to ask these questions because we learn so much about the person who's talking when we ask them these questions, right? Do they understand the core concept? Are they a good communicator? You know, which I think is really like the superpower of, you know, work today. Rob, I mean, immediately something that screams out from that is the idea that we should just be able to say to more people, whoa there, hold on. Can you talk me through that again, but in ways that I can understand? Or can you do that, but without without using the jargon or without using the numbers? I mean, that must be something very close to your heart. Well, incredibly close to my heart because someone actually gave me her book for Christmas. So maybe they were uh, suggesting that I could be clearer with how I uh, communicate numbers. I have to say, I I, I love Chip and Dan Heath, the two brothers who write a lot of books. And I love this book, Chip Heath and and Carla Starr. In Chip's first book, he, he talks about our knowledge has cursed us and how it becomes difficult for us to share our knowledge with others because we can't readily recreate our listener's state of mind. And I think that's what Carla was trying to get to. And and I must admit, you know, I spend all my time with a team of professionals and they love numbers to three significant figures. And in this book, she she talks about, you know, how so often people 
use statistics. So I might say, you know, 58% of people don't have enough money, uh, don't have 500 pounds in the bank for a rainy day fund. That number won't stick with people. It's much better to round it up or round it down uh, and say six out of 10 people don't have enough money because that's more relatable. It's easier to understand. It's not exactly correct, but it actually it's thinking about the audience and the listener and trying to make it easy to understand. And I completely agree with Carla that if we want to change behavior, if we want to educate people, if we want to inform people, we need to make it relatable. We need to make it easy to understand by the audience. And I have to say in the, the finance industry, uh, we're sort of particularly bad at sort of financial people writing these financial reports for other people like me to read it. And I think there's huge value in being like a Babel fish and being able to sort of convert this sort of technical financial markets data uh, and and turn it into data that I, I always challenge my team and say, I want my mum and dad, retired teachers, if they can't understand this, then it's not easy to understand. This is a, a wonderful segue here into our next guest, who's Jenny Radcliffe. Now, she's, I suppose at the coalface of what's been happening with behaviours on the internet and people falling for the wrong thing. She's a white hat hacker, which translates as a hacker for good. She doesn't just look at what people are doing and falling for online. She looks at the ways in which people's consciousnesses and their ideas of what they should do and their ideas of what they're falling for can be subtly subverted by the unscrupulous. She's also a hoot. We talk to her. I do worry because I found you very easy to get on when we were having a great chat just a minute ago before we started recording. And does that mean, are you doing it to me, the thing that you do? Because, of course, the human side of cybersecurity and social engineering is your stock in trade. Have you found that the ability to make people connect with you over various on various conversational topics leads naturally into what you do for a living? Yeah, I mean, it does. It's... Part of being a good social engineer, which we'll get into, I'm sure, shortly, it is about uh, rapport building and, and, and getting on well with people. But I think it's because I'm always interested in other people. And one of the things I say makes a bad social engineer is if they make the story all about them. The story is always about the other person. But it's also because I've been around such a lot and done so many different things um, in, in the course of my work and my career and everything that I found that everyone has a story and people people sometimes think they don't. People think they're boring. I had one guy came to me and said, I am the most boring person in the world. He said, I am. He said, I only do one thing. I've always done one thing and it's all I do. And he was very specific. He was the world's leading expert in a specific type of blue colour that's used in a specific type of tile. But that's a story. I was like, that's not boring. That's amazing. There's a conference there, you know. So I think partly it's because once you realise that people have got stories to tell and you're more genuinely more interested in them than yourself, then rapport happens quite well, quite easily. Uh, in terms of am I doing it to you, what I always say, people always say, you're doing it now. You're doing it right now. You've got me. And I always say, are you paying me to hack you? Because if you don't pay me to hack you and that's expensive, 
then I'm not hacking you. So what I think a lot of people listening to this would be thinking, and certainly the kind of popular perception, is they think about cybersecurity and suddenly their picture goes into people with incredibly technical pieces of code that can do various things to great big kind of uh, military systems and so on. And actually, I think the, the, the clear reality of it is very little of it is about what happens with code. It's about what happens with people, right? It is. So over 90% of all breaches, cyber breaches, all security breaches are down to a human being being manipulated or making a mistake. Most attacks are blended, but no matter how technical you get, you still need someone to click on a link, open an attachment or give information. So social engineering, which is what I do, which is the human side of all of this, is part of almost every security problem and every breach. Now, in terms of, you know, I always say I do have a hoodie. Uh, I have various black hoodies and I do wear them. But the image of that hoodie wearing, usually male kind of hacker, remotely using technical means to get into every company. Whilst that happens and it is true and technical hackers are unbelievable at what they can do it is a lot of the time a lot more simple and a lot more uh, human based which is why social engineering now is sort of the thing that everyone's talking about because people are starting to realize that it's about manipulation as much as tech and that's the space I kind of fill I was watching an interview where you were talking about how you walked around a company and took just very human clues about what to do and managed to get enough evidence or enough data to create quite a, a, a lot of incursions. But the company had spent a lot of money on what they thought was cybersecurity. When companies set up these great big technical barriers, is that not just false comfort, but is it actually unhelpful because it makes people take their eye off the ball? So there's a couple of things in that. In terms of uh, what you spend and whether that gives comfort, we call it, you know, it's a hard shell soft centre. So the problem is if you spent a fortune on physical security, like fences, alarms, gates, you know, biotech locks. Once you get through all of that, once you're on the inside, people assume that you've come through all that security and you're legitimate. So you can be very, your guard can come right down. And that's certainly true of a lot of places. And then what the job is, I suppose, I mean, just to, to give a definition, social engineering is about the manipulation of human characteristics to obtain unauthorized access to data, finance, and, and you know, locations, if you like, personal information. So what I do is we simulate those cons. We simulate a criminal attack in order to educate and to harden securities, right? So we show you where the holes in your rules are, in your people, in your procedures, and we get in. And often we use some technical stuff alongside it, but it's mostly about getting past people or getting around some sort of physical security. And in the case that you're talking about, they just hardened all their security. So the guy had blown his budget and and, and the perimeter of that site was incredibly uh, difficult to get through. So they had a big fence and lots of security guards and things who were not entirely on the ball, the security guards, but they weren't terrible. And he said to me, the guy, look, you know, you won't get past. He said, I know you're good and I know your crew is good. He said, but we've spent two million quid on this fence, essentially. And I mean, it it was a hard fence to get past. So you'll never get past, not unless someone leaves a door open for you. And, you know, you can't give me a clue. Don't give me a clue. So when we looked into it all, we realised there was ways to get past the fence. 
which basically involved a pretext of being a, a team that were there to do car maintenance. So we needed to make sure that there was a car that needed maintenance. So so we actually, we tried throwing stones at this windscreen, at this car that is clearly abandoned at, at the end of the car park. We'd, we'd been watching for a week. It had never moved. It had like moss and things on it. So we did some research and their executives as part of their package was to have things like windscreen repairs and valets done on site. So we just pretended to be someone who, who could do that. And, and we actually used a, an air pellet rifle to, to shoot out the windscreen and that just busted. And we didn't do it straight away. We had to take a few shots. We came through security saying that we were there to do a repair on the car, which he let through because that happened all the time. And then once we were in there, all we needed then to do, once we got past the perimeter, all we needed to do was get into the factory. And the way we did it was we just put a sign on the door saying, please do not close this door. So the team comes in, they say, like, we'll have to come back and fix the car. And of course, then the real repair team would have come in a day later or whatever. They left, but then I didn't go back with them in the van. I hid behind some um, those large bins, actually, which is a horrible part of my job. And then as soon as someone came out the door and saw the sign, they just left the door open because there's a sign telling you, do not close the door. So why would you? And so we just left it open. And, and as soon as the shift finished, I was in and, and we managed to go round. And then on site, what you're looking to do is sort of build a jigsaw of all the little sort of pieces of information that would allow a criminal once on site to uh, breach that security in some way. Um, and I was about 40 minutes inside before I had enough to, to do that. And the guy was devastated. What small and sensible measures can people justify don't hack yourself with? Is the best thing to do to cut down on their sharing? Is the best thing to do to deal in more people or more companies where you get a personal appointment rather than doing it over the phone or the internet or whatever? So there's basic cyber hygiene, by which I mean use unique passwords that you don't share with anyone. Uh, a password manager is a good tool and anyone in you know any business of any real size will have security teams and IT people who help you with that. The problem is, is people reuse passwords and that means that passwords are easily found on the uh, the dark web, right? We can find them easily. There's lists of everyone's emails and passwords. As long as that combination isn't the same for everything that you do, then it makes life much harder for a casual hacker, okay? So there's, if you like, there's two types. There's people, that, what we call a drive-by. So someone's just going to say, I'm going to find a few people, find the credentials and see what I can do. And then there's more targeted. But if we take the sort of casual one, so many people reuse passwords and share things to open forums without protecting them. It's just fishing about, you just go for the easiest targets, right? The issue is that some of them are very carefully crafted. They're very well done. You wouldn't necessarily know where to look to find out whether that was a, a phishing email. And so it gets more sophisticated. So don't think that you're too smart to be hacked. The other thing you can do is sort of keep everything up to date. So on your phone and on your laptop, update the apps. They're nearly always security updates. So just either have it on automatic or just make a point of when it's plugged in and you're grabbing a coffee, get all the apps updated on your phone and delete anything you don't use. Because that's a way of getting into it and on the on the computer as well. So software or apps that you don't use, get rid of. Well, Jenny, they're also talking, interestingly, about the ways in which we can start to view our data and our digital trail and the things that we do as points that can either be leveraged against us or for us. I mean, there's, there's a big theme developing here, isn't it? And, and effectively, it's that humans are humans. And we think in ways that perhaps aren't the same 
as algorithms and aren't the same as password managers and so on. And that that's our vulnerability, but it's also our strength. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. And there's so much in that. I think I, two things I wanted to to share. I think one was, and I'm sure many people watched this when it came out last year, but the the social dilemma, which was the Netflix documentary about social media. And I, I suppose what it showed me is that they're kind of getting the back door as she said or you, you know you'll never be able to get past me but just don't leave the gate open and how i suppose unwittingly through our activity on social media we're, we're, we're letting these companies in and you know we you know one day you're using whatsapp and you share a comment and then suddenly you check your instagram feed and you, you see advertising for that thing coming through there which is frightening I, I suppose the second thing and sort of closer to, to home for, for for our listeners is financial fraud and specifically pension scams. But the truth is that there are a lot of fly-by-night people who are looking to to con people, to scam people out of their, their money. And one of the things that, that we do at SJP is we do a lot of financial education and, and we teach young young kids about money and how to make good decisions about money. But in it, there's a, a character called Rich Ricky uh, and his company Easy Money, and and he has this offer which is too good to be true. And you know, basically, over the in the game, we 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 scam the kids out of out of money. Kids really get uh, upset, and and actually, it's deliberate. We're trying to take them through that emotional pain of 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 losing something, but in a safe space, and then to have the conversation. Well, what what was it? That gave us clues. You know, how did we know who Rich Ricky was? Well, his name, uh, his company, his offer was too good to be true. And I, I suppose the thing that really struck me is that you know we're never going to stop someone who intentionally wants to scam us financially. But often there are these kind of, as she says, fly-by-night hackers, and there are fly-by-night scammers and i think there's some one of the things that we can do for our clients and in fact for everyone is what's the kind of basic hygiene that that that, that you can do to 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 avoid being sort of financially scammed so when you get that text message from hsbc and then but with a website that looks nothing like hsbc or the tax people are, are the current ones aren't they you, you get phone calls where it says, hello, you are going to be arrested for not paying additional tax unless you've... And of course, the, there's that urgency always, isn't there, as well, that puts you under pressure, either in the, in the Rich Ricky way of, this is too good to miss out, don't miss out, or there's a penalty if you don't do exactly what I say right now. It, it, it's the emotional side, isn't it? That, that it's, it's really interesting that you're, you know, that you're, you are at SJP, because I almost sometimes wish I just had somebody to take that emotional side off off the, the moment of invest or don't invest for me. With Jenny, I mean, one of the great things about that interview was that I just, you know, it, and it's it's her persona as well, and everything is about authenticity and about being genuine and about helping. In, interesting, what she's doing is helping use that authenticity to inoculate people, a bit like you're doing with the kids, to inoculate them against the kinds of thinking that will lead them into trouble. I mean, that's a long-term project, isn't it? it? It almost takes us back to Azim's conversation where we have to access new ways of thinking that aren't just in the kind of panic of the here and now. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and actually, Carla made it as well when she talked about, you know, we don't need to be in silos and, you know, having the science teacher and, you know, how do we put everything in context? How do we, how do we kind of connect these things? You know, I mean, I must admit, you know, listening to her, I've definitely gone and reviewed some of my, my the, the things I do to improve my, uh, 
cybersecurity, or at least make me less hard to break than my next door neighbor. That thing about your next door neighbor, there's, you know, Jenny's point about, you know, just making yourself a little bit harder than the easier targets that there's, it reminded me, we were, we were talking yesterday, it reminds me of that story about wildlife cameramen and a lion turning towards them and, and one cameraman putting his trainers on and the other saying, I'm, you're not going to outrun the lion if it decides to attack us. That's it. And he said, well, I just want to out, outrun you, actually. That's all I need to do to escape from the lion. And I think that we are in a, uh, a position and in a way we're lucky to be in it, are we not? We're, where the basics are, are, are what we need to do. And just if we can be a little bit careful, nobody's asking, as, as Azim said, and as you said, no one's asking us to be experts at putting up super duper firewalls. We just need to make ourselves a little bit harder to take advantage of. And also to find people who are experts to advise us. So be it on firewalls, be it on investing, be it on cybersecurity. So it's okay not to know everything, but on the stuff that you don't know, you all you need to know is it's important and you need to do something about it. So find the best doctor, find the best personal trainer, find the best nutritionist, find the best person at Firewall, find your Jenny. Rob, as ever, thanks again for an inspiring conversation. And thank you to our guests, Azim Azar, Carla Starr and Jenny Radcliffe. You've been listening to Tomorrow Comes Today, the thought leadership podcast from St. James's Place. To learn more about the series, just go to sjp.co.uk slash tctpodcast and please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.